May he do it for his glory. Amen? You can be seated. Well, last week in our study of 1 Samuel, we saw David on the run, desperate, alone, and in danger. And yet we saw that God provided for him and God protected him. And he did both in unusual ways. But the story doesn't exactly end on a totally happy note. David is still in danger. He's still on the run. Remember I said last week that beginning in chapter 19, we start getting this chorus, this mantra almost. David fled and escaped. He fled and escaped. David fled from there. David departed and escaped. And that's where we left off last week. We dipped into chapter 22 right at the beginning. Verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. God provided and protected in chapter 1. And and David later reflected on those seasons of God's provision and protection with great praise by writing psalms later. But in a sense, he's as bad off as ever in chapter 22, verse 1. He's now hiding out in a cave. Once again, the setting for God's anointed for the future king of Israel is one of being alone, helpless, and desperate. Or is he? Or is he? Let's peek into the cave. We can, not through 1 Samuel 22, but through Psalm 57. Would you keep your finger in 1 Samuel 22 and turn to Psalm 57? Psalm 57 is one of those psalms written by David with a heading at the top that tells us something of the contextual circumstances upon which it was based, the reason for it being written. So in Psalm 57, we read that it's a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. David was on the run from Saul and in a cave in another occasion besides 1 Samuel 22, but most likely 1 Samuel 22 is what's in mind here in Psalm 57. And so let's peek into the mind of the psalmist as he's in the cave alone, on the run, desperate, in danger, helpless. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. 
That's enough of Psalm 57 for us to see what's going on in that cave. Yes, he's in danger, but he's far from despair. He's alone, humanly speaking, but God is with him. And he's confident in that God, and he is praising that God. Psalm 142 was likely also written at the same time when David was in the cave. I'll just read a couple of verses from that. It says, the beginning, when he was in the cave. And there David said, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains. No one cares for my soul. Again, alone, desperate. But the very next verse, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion. In other words, my everything. So David is alone and helpless and desperate from one angle, but God is with him and he's confident in God. He's praying to God and he's writing it down for us to see millennia later. Now back to 1 Samuel 22. Trent read it for us already. It's a tale of two kings. And really, they're contrasting kings. It's meant to be a contrast. We're introduced to David in the beginning of chapter 22 with with several different uh, portrayals, you could say, or scenes. And then Saul comes into view for a couple of scenes. And then it goes back to David for the last few verses. The back and forth is meant to show us this contrast. Now, before we dig into that contrast... Let me remind you of something that you've probably forgotten by now, even if you were here many weeks ago when I said it in in one of the sermons on 1 Samuel. I said that we can't help but read a story or watch a movie without placing ourselves somewhere in the story. We identify most with one of the characters. Oftentimes, it's the protagonist, the main good guy or the main good girl. Even if we know we're not that good, even if we know we're not that capable, we can watch the Bourne movies or read the Bourne books, and and we know we're not as clever or strong or fast or capable as Jason Bourne, but we want to be, and in another world we can imagine ourselves being like that, and so we watch thinking of ourselves kind of like him. We watch it through his eyes or in his shoes. Well, at this stage of 1 Samuel, we have two main characters, David the good and Saul the bad. And so it's easy for us to read the story standing in David's shoes and saying to ourselves, come on, be like David, be courageous, be strong, be faithful. We can see as the spotlight turns to Saul and all his dark ways, all his backward thinking, we, we know to not be like Saul. We don't want to be like him. Well, leave it to us Americans to identify with or compare ourselves with the kings of the story. I wonder if other cultures would do that so quickly. You see, in every story we've looked at, there are other people involved. And so rather than look at 1 Samuel and think, what's it like to be David? How can I be more like David? What's it like to be Saul? Don't be like Saul. Instead, we should be asking ourselves this question. What's it like to be under this guy? We're to imagine ourselves as people under their rule. For Samuel is a book about 
godly leadership, the need for godly rule. It's addressing the problem of a lack of godly rule. Remember, that's how judges ended. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the problem that's getting addressed with a godly king eventually. So rather than imitate David, we should be thinking about those in the story who are with David or under David. And rather than not be like Saul, we should, of course, but we should be thinking first, what's it like to be with Saul or under Saul? So keep that in mind as we study 1 Samuel 22 today and as we move forward in the book after today. We see first in 1 Samuel 22, first, David welcoming the weary. David welcoming the weary in verse 2. It says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt in the land, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David out of the cave and he became captain over them and there was with him about 400 men really there are three d's in verse two it's not in the esv that there are three d's but it says in distress in debt and the esv has bitter in soul but literally that's discontented those who were in distress in debt and discontented came out to David. Almost certainly these people in their distress and their debt has come at the hand of Saul. It's because of Saul. They're discontented with Saul. They're disenfranchised. They're disillusioned with this king and his reign. And in so doing, they're outcasts now. They're considered the ragtag nobodies of the land. These are the people in trouble. These are those who are on the out. These are those who are not on the up and up. They're riffraff. And David welcomes them. And he's with them. And he leads them. Already we have an implied contrast between two kings. There's no mention of Saul in verse 2. But we're already seeing what it's like to be under that king. You don't want to be. You don't want to be. Under that king, distress, debt, and eventually discontent. These people have come to the end of their rope. And Saul is so clearly trouble. And David is so clearly blessing that a cave in the wilderness with David is the only logical option for them. Where else can they go? Does this sound familiar to you, Christian? Isn't this the economy of the gospel of Christ? Matthew eleven twenty eight. There Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor or are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you discontented, all you in distress, all you spiritually in debt, come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, we're told. And who were the disciples? They were a bunch of nobodies, weren't they? I mean, you have fishermen, you got a tax collector, you have nobodies. Who are you? 
Who am I? Well, we read 1 Corinthians 1 a few weeks back. There, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. That's us. It makes no sense for these in distress in 1 Samuel 22 to go out to David. David's the one in the cave, and yet he's the true king. It makes no sense to go out to David unless he's the true king. But what an unusual king he is. What an unusual kingdom it is. It doesn't look like a king. It doesn't look like a kingdom. It doesn't make any sense to follow Jesus. You'd have to be a fool to follow Jesus these days. You'd have to be a fool. It's getting harder and harder to be a Christian. You'd have to be a fool, except he's the king. Where else can you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Secondly, we see David providing for his parents. We see him welcoming the weary, then quickly it turns to David providing for his parents. In verse 3, it says that David left the cave and he went to Moab, to the king of Moab. Why? To seek care for his parents. They must have been elderly by now. David is public enemy number one in these days. It's a risky thing to be around David. Surely, if Saul got hold of David, he would kill his parents just as quickly and easily as he would kill David. So David makes an arrangement with the king of Moab for his parents' safekeeping, at least until things settle down a bit. Now You might remember that there's a Moab connection in David's family. Ruth, as in the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite, and she was David's great-grandmother. Is that an incidental detail? David has Moabite blood in him? Or was it instead something that helps secure his parents' safety with the king of Moab? It sure doesn't hurt that he's got Moab blood in his ancestry. I don't think it's incidental. I think this is providential. And God often works in these sort of hidden ways, these intricate, long-term unforeseen ways. We say, who'd have thunk it? Well, who'd have thunk it that a Moabite would marry a Jew and they'd have a son who'd have a son who'd have a son and he'd be on the run someday and his parents would be in danger. And he could then tap the king of Moab as a Moabite and say, can you help keep eye on my parents while I'm in trouble? It's how God works oftentimes, hidden, intricate, long-term, unforeseen ways. Nevertheless, David cared for his family. That's the point of the passage. He protected and he provided for them. Jesus did something similar for his mom in his final hour even. 
From the cross, he handed the care of his mother over to the beloved disciple, he's called. In John 19, Jesus said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In other words, Jesus said, John, take care of my mom as if she were your own. Mom, go and live with John. He'll watch out and care for you. David cared for his family. Jesus cared for his mom. It's a good thing. Saul, on the other hand, he's threatened his son Jonathan's life twice by now. Twice he's tried to set up his daughters to to marry David. He's used his daughters as bait for his enemy's demise. Of course, those plots failed, but his family is in shambles, all because of him. Thirdly, we see David led by the Lord. David's led by the Lord in verse 5. There it says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. And so David departed. Now that looks like a small detail, but it's actually worth some lingering here. It's not just good advice. It's not just a prophet foreseeing the future. It's God speaking through the prophet to David. David here is being led by the Lord. And that's a big deal. God speaking to David. God speaking has been a big part of the story of 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 3, that chapter began, the word of the Lord was rare in these days, but then the story unfolds. Samuel, the young prophet-to-be, begins to hear from God, and the prophet begins to speak to the nation. Now the word of the Lord is not rare, but through Samuel, because God is speaking through Samuel, the word of the Lord isn't rare anymore. It's flourishing in the land. And so God's leading all along the way there. He's speaking through Samuel, left and right. Chapters 7 to 15, Samuel plays a massive role in what's going on in Israel. And remember in chapter 15, there Samuel the prophet and Saul the king departed from each other. The chapter ended like this. Samuel no longer saw Saul until the day of his death. Remember what that means. That's just not a broken friendship or a broken working relationship. That means the word of the Lord had gone away from the king And he now didn't have access to it. By now, here in chapter 22, it's very clear. The word of the Lord departed from Saul. He has no prophet. He's not led of the Lord. But the word of the Lord was with David through the prophet. And he was led of the Lord. And in this case, it's for David's protection. That's what verse 5 is about. He gets a foreshadow or a... A warning shot, you could say. Something about to come. Something's about to come that's threatening and, and he gets out. It's reminiscent, really, of God's protection of Jesus in Matthew 2, isn't it? Remember Herod so wanted to wipe out the, the baby king that he was willing to murder all males two years and under. 
But an angel warned Mary and Joseph about this in advance, and they fled. They got out. Sometimes God protects and provides in these miraculous, spoken, visible, powerful, undeniable ways. And other times, God provides and protects in these mysterious, unforeseen, even strange ways like we saw last week in 1 Samuel 21. David gets bread from the priest at the tabernacle. It's worship bread. It's not even real bread. It's not not common bread. It's not store-bought bread. He gets protection as David is in the land of Gath, the Philistines. God protects him through, through his own feigned insanity. What an odd story. Nevertheless, God protects. God leads. Now, fourth, we turn to Saul. And we see Saul sulking amidst silence. Sulking amidst silence in verse 6. It says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Now, that looks like a simple description, but it's just loaded with symbolism and implications. What a contrast. Remember, David's on the run. Saul is sitting. David's in a cave or fleeing even from there into the wilderness. But Saul is sitting under a tamarisk tree, up high, in public, for anyone to see. He's not hiding. He's certainly not on the run. There's no threat, even though he has a spear at his side. We've been seeing the importance of that. It shows, his, it shows his fear, doesn't it? It shows that he's so Philistine-like with his armor and his spear ever at his side. And his servants are standing about him. David, for a while, had no one with him, and then he gets 400 down-and-outers. And here's Saul with a legion of mighty soldiers, no doubt, standing and looking at him, awaiting his next word. And here's his next word. He berates them. In verse 7, Saul says to his servants, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, notice he doesn't even call him David, he can hardly speak his name, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. We're witnessing Saul's unraveling, aren't we? He's consumed with fear. He's consumed with paranoia. He gets some details of the story right. Yes, Jonathan and David had covenanted together. Yes, Jonathan, in a sense, had sided with David and not his father. But David wasn't lying in wait. There was no conspiracy going on. There certainly wasn't a conspiracy involving Saul's soldiers, even if they knew what was going on. What David, uh, sorry, what Saul says here 
should remind us of something back in chapter 8. Would you turn back there? Turn back to 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel the prophet warned the people what it would be like for this king that they demanded. Remember, they demanded a king like the nations. So Samuel the prophet told them about the kind of king they'd have, what he'll be like. Saul is that king. Samuel said in verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 14, he'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will, verse 16, take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. And they'll put them put to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. That's what it'll be like. And if you notice, there's actually a difference though. In 1 Samuel 8 to 1 Samuel 22, Saul's speech in 1 Samuel 22 didn't say, I will take, 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 take. He actually said, I'll give, 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 give. So why are they parallel? Why should we think of one and the other? Well, notice in 1 Samuel 22 verse 7, Saul's men are all people of Benjamin, people of his hometown, his cronies. And he's made them rich. He's given them power and opportunity, yes. But in order to do that, Saul had to take, take, take from all the other tribes. This guy's so paranoid. He thinks... I'll get people from my own hometown. I'll give, give, give to them. But in order to do so, you need to take, take, take from everyone else. And notice, after this speech and this berating, this interrogation, there's silence among the troops. No one speaks. No one is really with Saul. Now they're with him but they're not really with him. They likely knew of the covenant that Jonathan and David had made. They likely knew where David had gone to in in the days past. And they were silent about that to Saul. And now that he says, how come no one told me? They're silent again, just crickets. David has the prophet as his counselor. David's inside information is from God. That's who. God. Saul, he has no one to whisper in his ear, no one who will give him the down low, no one even to feel sorry for him. Well, this one guy, Doeg the Edomite. We got introduced to him in the last chapter, just in passing. David's at the tabernacle, and there in the corner is Doeg the Edomite, the guy who's in charge of Saul's sheep. Now, verse 9. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him. And gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. There's Doeg, an Edomite. 
willing to tell on David, willing, of course, to side with King Saul. By the way, David later reflected on Doeg in this one instant of Doeg telling Saul about his uh, seeing David of the tabernacle. That's in Psalm 52, if you want to read it later. We won't read it this morning, but it's noteworthy that David writes a psalm about Doeg, and it's not very nice. It's one of those meaner ones. Now, fifth, we see Saul in another scene here, raging with revenge. Saul raging with revenge in verses 11 to 19. Verses 11 and 19 show us that scary and savage scene of Saul among the priests. Saul gathers Ahimelech the priests and all the priests from Nob. Remember, Doeg has just said, I saw David there at the tabernacle and Ahimelech gave him bread and Goliath's sword. So now Saul asks the priests, Why have you conspired against me? Verse 13. He gets it right later on, the, the details of bread and sword. But beyond that, he's reading into more than is actually taking place. Why have you conspired against me? He thinks there's this labyrinth conspiracy going on behind the scenes. Everyone's in on it but him. And that wasn't the case, as you can see from Ahimelech's defense. Verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, Who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? It doesn't make any sense that you're against him, that he's your enemy. Verse 15, he says, Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this. He knew something. He knew about the bread and he knew about the sword and he was there, right? But what he's saying is, I know nothing of any conspiracy. I know nothing of what you're imputing to me. And on that front, he's right. He's dead on, isn't he? Yeah, he's provided for David, but David's the king's son-in-law. Yeah, he, he interceded for David, but he's done that many times before. But it's no avail with the king. Verse 16, the king says, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house, your whole family. So the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. You get this? This is expanding, isn't it? First it's Ahimelech, and then it's Ahimelech and his family. And then it's Ahimelech and his family and all the priests. Thankfully, the servants, it says in verse 17, would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Notice, of the Lord is emphasized, right? These are priests of the Lord. It doesn't matter what they've done. These are priests of the Lord. You can't just wipe them out. They refuse. So Saul turns to his now only reliable servant, one who doesn't have the hang-up of a conscience, one who feels just fine about killing priests, Doeg, 
the Edomite. Now we see the little tip of the hand from the chapter before Doeg the Edomite was there. Here's the foreshadow that was giving us. Verse 18. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. What's more, Nob, the whole city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both men and women, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. What breathtaking wickedness. And you can say, well, Saul didn't say to do that. Maybe, you know, that was going too far. But Saul says nothing, right? He, he attempts to hold him back none at all. Yeah, Doag went further than Saul actually commanded when he killed a whole city and all of its living things. But Saul seems clearly okay with the extensive brutality going on here. Just picture it. I know you, you want to go on to the next scene. We want to talk about something else. This isn't a time we want to hit slow motion on the DVR, but we're supposed to. We've got to look at that. What horrible, horrible wickedness. And he even wipes out the animals. Senseless rage. And this should remind us of something that came earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. Do you remember what was Saul's big downfall? Oh, he's had all kinds of stumbling moments, stumbling here, stumbling there, some big, some small. But, but the tipping point was in chapter 15, where God commanded Saul to lead the army into battle against the Amalekites and to spare none of them, people, animals, things, none of it. It's a hard command to obey, but it it's God's command nonetheless, and Saul doesn't obey it, or at least not fully. He spares the king of the Amalekites and anything that isn't worthless. He just keeps it. And we're not told why. He didn't go all the way. He wasn't all in against the enemy. But now in chapter 22, against his own people, against his own priests, He's all in, and he holds nothing back. Killing priests, in a sense, may be more immoral than killing other people. It would make more news if, it, if you read the headline, so-and-so killed a hundred pastors, right? But don't think like the priests are morally better, and that's why it's such a bad thing to, to kill. Or they're nice guys. They mean well. They do good. They do good things. They even get tax write-offs and such like that. So killing them, boy, it's bad. Don't miss what's happening here. Saul willing to wipe out the priests means willing to wipe out the priesthood. And the priesthood means intercession. This is how Israel stays Israel. At this time, in this day, this is how Israel remains with this holy God, a sinful people, a holy God that only got, his wrath only got put aside through the sacrifice system, at least in the short term. And Saul cares none about that. He's willing to wipe out the priesthood, 
God's provision for intercession. Don't forget in all this, Saul's downward spiral that we keep talking about, that vortex of sin. Don't forget sin is sneaky and sin is slippery and each sin desires to be the utmost of its kind, John Owen said. Remember, we used to refer to Saul many chapters ago as a mixed bag. He did some good things, then some bad things, good things and bad things. Not anymore. It's all bad. But it didn't happen in a day. He didn't wake up one morning and say, how bad can I be? Sin is deceptive and sneaky. It's slippery. And so we Christians should see Saul and we should tremble. And we should be sober-minded about fighting sin and persevering and keeping short accounts and not playing loose with the Lord and knowing our own frailty, knowing what we sing in that old hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. May it never be for us. And then lastly, we go back to David. Sixth, David sought and safe. What I mean by that is David is still sought at the end of the chapter, and yet he's safe, and those with him are safe. One son of Ahimelech made it out alive that day, we find out in verse 20. Only one, one son of the priest made it out, and he came to David. And here's the money line of the whole chapter. It's in the last verse. David says to Ahimelech, I'm sorry, to the son of Ahimelech, verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safe keeping. How beautifully ironic. It's almost comedic. It doesn't seem to make sense. David is public enemy number one. He's just had some involvement in the, the murder of 85 priests in, in their families and a whole city of Nob. I mean, it's because he was there that those people died. And he takes responsibility for that in verse 22. But with David, it's not a safe place. It doesn't seem. And he says to the son of Ahimelech, stay with me and you don't have to be afraid. Those who are trying to kill you are also trying to kill me even more. And with me, you'll be safe. Can you imagine Osama bin Laden saying this to one of his cronies? I know I'm the ace of spades in the most wanted deck. I know America is really big and strong and they have stealth helicopters and such, but, but don't worry, with me, you'll be safe. Well, it's not true with Osama bin Laden, but it is true with David, because David is the true king. God says so, and God will bring it to pass, even through all these crazy turns and ups and downs, this, these upheavals and problems. God will bring it to pass in his own timing and in his own way. And even now, even here in chapter 22, 
David's the one who's acting like a true king, not Saul. What's Saul doing? He's sulking, he's sitting, he's holding the spear, he's berating his men, getting no answers, killing priests, wiping out his people. But David is gathering to himself, leading, he's caring, he's protecting, he's hearing from God and leading accordingly. And he's assuring those who are with him and under him, with me you will be safe, even though all around seems like very stormy weather. What's more, now the priesthood is with David. When the son of Ahimelech flees and goes to David and stays with David, one of the things it tells us is that the priesthood is no longer under Saul and with Saul. It's now under David and with David. David is looking more kingly by the minute, isn't he? If you see it, if you have eyes to see it, if you have faith to trust it. It makes no sense to go out to David in the cave. It makes no sense to say, I'm safe with David, public enemy number one, unless he's the true king. And so it is, and so much the more, with King Jesus. Jesus said something similar to his disciples in Luke 21, similar to what David said at the end of 1 Samuel 22. Jesus said, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish. That doesn't seem to make any sense. Don't worry, they won't touch a hair on your head. You might die, but they won't mess up your hair. Is that what he's saying? No, no, no. He's saying, they won't touch a hair apart from my will. I'll protect you even while they kill you. With me, there's safety, even though the waters around look choppy and stormy and deadly. Like Abiathar, Flee to the king. Flee to him even though he doesn't look like a king. Where else can you go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who's your king? Who will you follow? Who's on your throne? Maybe you say, no one. I make up my own rules. I'm on my own throne. I have no king but me. Will you, then, will you then scratch and claw to protect your own little kingdom? That's what Saul did. You can see the writing on the wall. It's not going well for him, is it? How's it going for you? Clawing, scratching to keep your tiny little kingdom. Eventually that will come crashing down. Give up your kingdom. Come under the gracious king. 
He takes all those who are in distress, all those who are discontent. If you're not discontent, if you're not in distress, if you're not in despair with your throne right now, you're not ready for Jesus. You're not ready for him. But if you're discontent and restless, then come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will have rest. And yet be sure, Jesus said, the world hated me, it'll hate you also. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Again, it's harder and harder to be a Christian these days. You'd have to be a fool unless he's the king. He's the king, and many in the world hate him. But this is as old as Cain, hating and killing righteous Abel. There's been a long line of antichrists in this world. Cain and Pharaoh, Saul, Herod, on and on it goes. We were told in 1 John 2, yes, antichrist with a capital A is coming, but now many Christs, many antichrists have already come. Really, that's what David was referring to back in Psalm 2. Something we read often in going through 1 Samuel, and really we could read it each week. Each week, Psalm 2 can give us something of an x-ray of what's going on in the drama of 1 Samuel. There where David wrote, Why do the nations rage? It's senseless. Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. This is as old as the serpent and the seed. Back in Genesis 3, the serpent opposes the sun. That's what led to the cross. The serpent also opposes all the son's offspring. But just like the resurrection followed the cross and guaranteed victory, so we too know the end of the story and know that the victory is ours, even though we'd be opposed by Satan himself. In Revelation 12, and I'll wrap it up with this, we read about that great dragon who at the beginning of time was thrown down that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world the accuser of our brothers he's been thrown down and he accuses them day and night before our God and yet these Christians all of us have conquered him by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony and the fact that they loved not their lives even unto death. They overcame Satan because Jesus died in their place and so his accusations are, dare I say, like farts in the wind, to quote Martin Luther. We've overcome Satan by the word of our testimony. 
by our bold proclamation in this world, which he can't stop, even in the midst of persecution. And we conquer Satan whenever we love not our lives, but love eternal life and the life that we have in Jesus. Do you know this refuge? Have you fled to Jesus? You know that your sins are forgiven? Oh, we pray so. We plead with you. Flee to him, even though it looks like a cave, even though it looks foolish. Christian, let's draw up these strings, as it were, as we pull this together, that we should be sober. The devil's real. There's a cosmic battle going on. It's not yet done. It's as good as done. So in the meantime, we put on our armor and we pray. And we must be confident about the blood of Christ as our only saving hope. We overcome Satan by the blood. We must be bold in our confession and bold about our proclamation about the blood of the Son. We must hold this life and its possessions loosely, cherishing instead eternal life and eternal reward that only God can, de- can give. In light of that, we can say, what can man do to us? We can say, what can man take from us? We must go to his word daily for comfort, for realigning our thoughts, for remembering the big picture, for seeing the prayers of those like David who confessed their need openly and yet preached to themselves about what to believe, about what we know, about what is unseen but more real than the scene. Preach to yourself when you're in the cave. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'd help us even now as we sing from Psalm 62, that you'd help us to preach to ourselves and each other in this room about who you are, about what we have, about what you will do, about what is real. Help us to do this, not just when we meet together on a Sunday morning, but around our tables, in our homes, on our beds, all through the week. May your word be precious to us, because you are precious to us, and you speak through your word. Speak now through your word and through each other as we sing of your strength and care and nearness and goodness to us. Amen.